Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great to have you with us. Appreciate you tuning in. A little bit of a uh, landmark for the show this evening. We are about to talk to Jason Lewis. Of course, you're all very familiar with him. He used to broadcast over this very air and is now serving as a congressman in the 2nd Congressional District in the Southern Metro. And uh, we're going to get his take on the Molly Tibbetts story. And there's been another story right here locally out of Shakopee that's relevant to what's uh, been going on with the immigration issue as well. Appreciate having Congressman Jason Lewis on with us on Closing Argument. Thanks for joining the program. You bet. Good to be on uh, your show, Walter. Congrats. I appreciate that. It's great to have you. So we had this horrible tragedy which took place with uh, the horrendous murder of Molly Tibbetts that has become uh, quite the, the touchstone for the debate over immigration and immigration policy. And it's been interesting watching the responses from various persons, uh, especially those seeking office. You have a Democratic opponent by the name of Angie Craig in the 2nd District, and she had this to say, uh, written to NPR News. She said, I am heartbroken for the family of Molly Tibbetts and cannot imagine the anguish they are experiencing. We should be supporting this family, not subjecting them to politics. That is why I find it so outrageous that rather than solving problems like our broken immigration system, Jason Lewis is politicizing this tragedy. But this is a pattern. Lewis has done nothing to ban the secret and unlimited donations that are drowning out the voices of Minnesotans and other Americans in our election system. That's an odd pivot. He has also not worked to find a a way to lower health care costs for people in Minnesota. We need leaders who are working to fix problems, not place blame. That was her statement to NPR News. Now, your campaign put out a statement in response to this. In in your own words, uh, what do you make of this response to the murder of Molly Tibbetts? Well, leave it to a would-be politician, the status quo sort of individual to go from a, a tragic murder uh, because of porous borders to campaign finance reform. I mean, it's like, okay, here are your talking points. Stick with this no matter what the issue is. And that's just more of the same and the last thing Washington needs. Oh, I find it very, very intriguing that my opponent will run around in circles to avoid actually answering a question or addressing an issue. You have a situation in Iowa, as you had with Kate Steinle, as we had today in, or found out today in Shakopee, or is it a direct result of having open borders where people who are deported can simply walk back in, where people can come here from anywhere from four to seven years, as was the case in Iowa, and the authorities didn't even know how long for certain, and kill people? And you're talking about campaign finance reform? Uh, that, that trivializes the issue, and quite frankly, it's offensive. Um, the simple fact of the matter is we could have prevented this if we secure our borders. And you're either for that or you're not. Now, look, reasonable people can disagree. So if you believe in Kirsten Gillibrand's view of abolishing ICE and having open borders or Keith Ellison's view of no borders at all, then say it. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have the opposite view, as I do, that I think we ought to have uh, border control, that we ought to build a wall, and that a nation that doesn't control its borders is no nation at all, 
as Ronald Reagan once said, then say that. But have the the guts to say something instead of the usual spin. And as to the, the bizarre comment that we haven't compromised or worked, I voted for two immigration bills this summer, both of which would have fixed the DACA issue, giving documented status to the DREAMers, both of which would have fixed the family separation issue, undoing the Flores consent decree. The only, the only requirement of compromise on the Democrat side was $25 billion for border security. They said, no, we will absolutely not compromise, even though you gave us DACA, even though you gave us family separation reform, we will not compromise and build a wall or put on border security. So we, we were ready to do that. We voted twice on it, and both times the Democrats would not play ball because they want to use immigration as an issue. So th- this, this is about policy having an effect. And the question becomes, had we had control of the borders and illegal immigrants were not allowed in Iowa or in Shakopee, would somebody's life have been saved And I think the answer is obvious to most reasonable people. Immigration, of course, has become a a touchpoint issue, a priority issue, more so perhaps than it has been in, in my lifetime. It's right at the forefront. As listeners are well aware, you spent several years broadcasting over this very air before serving in Congress. And as one of the many young conservatives who grew up on your commentary, I recall a fairly libertarian bent. Yep. And obviously the job of representative is a lot different from that of a commentator in terms of right. the responsibilities you have. And I'm sure you've had to rethink more than one issue since taking on this role. But I'm wondering how you factor in free market principles to an issue yeah. like immigration. You know, For instance, if employers want to seek the highest value at the lowest cost by hiring workers from across the border, why should we stop them? It's a great question, and, and you're certainly right. There's a difference between a politician and a pundit, and I decided on that before I ran, that it's, it's, e- it's easy to be the master of your own universe when you're doing a talk show, but when you go into the House of Representatives, there are 434 other type A personalities who think things ought to be done their way instead of yours. So if you're not willing to compromise, as I mentioned a minute ago, you're not going to get anything done. So we've got this sort of dichotomy, Walter, between the total squish, the Republican in name only that goes there and basically does nothing, or when they do something, it's working with the, the left side of the spectrum, and the total purist who, who will take the troops over the cliff. The law gets slaughtered, but they say they didn't surrender. Either way, nothing gets done. So you have to decide priorities. What are your priorities? And then you focus on those, because you're not going to get your way on everything. So, for instance, I've worked with a Democrat, ironically enough, but he's a very liberal Democrat, Bobby Scott of Virginia, on criminal justice reform and juvenile justice reform. This is a bill uh, um, supported and endorsed by FreedomWorks, by the American Conservative Union, and by the NAACP and Families Against Mandatory Minimums. You can take your principles, and in this case, my principles are federalism. Not everyone ought to be locked up for nonviolent offenses, and I've, I've co-sponsored about five or six bills on letting states decide issues like marijuana. You can take those principles and work with people across the aisle to, 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 to move them or move the needle. What you can't do is say, it's my way or the highway. Hmm. And yeah. that's, that's something that I, I intuitively understood before running, and, right. and it's come to fruition now that I'm there, and you just have to focus on what you think is important. One thing I will say, having a talk radio background, however, is I, I have noticed I'm a little less shy about taking positions. Right. <laughs> 
And it, it, the, 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 you know, people say, what's the swamp? What, what, what's it like in Washington? The timidity is palpable. Mm-hmm. The single biggest thing I notice on, uh, and quite frankly, both sides of the spectrum often, is the, their constant fear to alienate one person. Right. You know, not 100,000, not 10 million, not right. 100 million, one person. Yeah, right. I guess politicians all think they can get 100% of the vote. I, I I'm not certain. But the, 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 call it political correctness, call it timidity, call it walking on eggshells. It, it is really something. And I'm saying, no, no, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to make my case and let the chips fall. And that's one thing that is a huge difference between me and my opponent. We can't get Angie Craig to take a position on immigration. You got $5,000 from Kirsten Gillibrand. She wants to abolish ICE. Are you there? Well, I'm not going to say. Well, look, our Medicare for all is what Democrats are pushing on health care. Are you there? Well, I'm not going to say. Well, what about Nancy Pelosi for Speaker? You're going to have to face that if you're the Democrats. Are you for it? I'm not going to say. And so it really is more of the same. I mean, if you're looking for someone to fit into the swamp, there you go. Um, and, and I don't think that's fair to the constituents of the 2nd District. They ought to know where you stand. And you certainly haven't been shy about saying that. You know, it's interesting, considering your point about the the need to acknowledge institutional reality. You know, you're going into this body that is formatted a certain way and, and goes by certain rules, and you can't just, you know, bludgeon your way around expecting to get everything that you want. Right. Do you think that there is, to, to a certain extent, an expectation that's created amongst constituents that some, somebody in a position like a, a congressman or a congresswoman can go in there and just through sheer force of will make things happen all by themselves? Well, I will say this. I mean, if you look at the first 500 days of the 115th, uh, uh, the 500 days of the Trump administration, um, the record is pretty astounding. Mm-hmm. You take a look at the courts, a couple of the Supreme Court uh, picks. You take a look at the lower courts. You take a look at the greatest tax reform, even a tax reform that's really more dramatic than Kemp Roth or the Reagan tax reforms. You take a look at the deregulation, passing the RAINS Act, the Regulatory Accountability Act, undoing Chevron, 17 CRAs, undoing about $4 billion worth of regulations. If you look, the day James Comey testified, we repealed Dodd-Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been kind of a monumental session. Having said all that, to your point, the constitutional uh, republic of ours, by design, is incremental. Right. It is not designed to move in, in, in leaps and bounds. It is designed to move slowly so we don't make mistakes. Right. Hence the various branches horizontally and vertically, I might add. So that's a good segue into the stakes of this election. We're facing a midterm election, 2018. There are several factors which make the stakes of this year's election particularly high. We've got both the U.S. Senate seats in this state on the ballot. We've got an open seat for governor. We, of course, have Keith Ellison, who you've already mentioned, who's seeking the attorney general spot in this state. From your perspective in Congress, what do you see as the stakes of this midterm election? Yeah, they are very high, and I think it's the most monumental midterm in my lifetime. And, you know, people just say, well, you're just saying that because you're in Congress. But no, I actually do, because here's what's going to happen if, for instance, the Democrats retake the House. You will have Adam Schiff running the Intel Committee, which means there will be partisan investigation after investigation. Maxine Waters running financial services. She'll be the chair of financial services, which means Dodd-Frank is back, and this time on Elizabeth Warren steroids. You, you will have Nancy Pelosi as speaker, more than likely. She's raising the most money for people like my opponent. So she will be the speaker. You will have an impeachment crisis. 
you will have taxes dramatically go up, a re-regulation of the economy, and the end of the current administration as well as the progress we've made. That is, they're, they're not being shy about this. They're telegraphing this. That's right. what will happen. So in the second district, the average individual is getting around of uh, $2,000 for a tax cut. The family of four, $3,000. That's gone. Uh, my opponent in this race, Walter, said that the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was the worst piece of legislation in history and ought to be repealed in its entirety. So that's gone. You take a look at the waters of the U.S. rule on agriculture, that stays. If you take a look at Dodd-Frank, it's back, and we'll move to socialized government control medicine called Medicare for All, which, by the way, not only bankrupts Medicare, um, but it takes away employer-sponsored insurance and throws everybody into a free-for-all socialized system. Yeah, if you thought you couldn't keep your doctor before, just wait. (laughs) Just wait. So those stakes are fairly high. And the challenge I have is trying to get that across. The challenge we all have is making certain people understand those stakes. So as you're campaigning around the 2nd District and you're speaking to people directly, what are the issues and concerns that you are hearing again and again that kind of emerges themes on people's minds out there? Well, I think people are very concerned about about um, Judge Kavanaugh being confirmed or not being confirmed, I should say. I mean, the, the fact is here's a guy that's eminently qualified, and, and are the Democrats going to try to conjure up some way to stop uh, judge kavanaugh who who was uh you know roundly praised uh, when he was a lower court judge um so the courts are very important in making certain we go back to the constitutional principle that that indeed courts are there to adjudicate disputes according to the law not obviously as the saying goes to create the law now there's some nuance in there i get it but one of the things that i'm really really zeroed in on is making certain that the enumerated powers doctrine is is upheld in a constitutional way so the federal government doesn't doesn't creep into things it shouldn't be in and that you can call that conservative or liberal i don't care but just as i think transportation is primarily a local issue and i'm working to 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 make certain the met council is more responsive by making them have an elected member to be federally compliant just as all other MPOs are right now. Every other metropolitan planning organization has to have one elected board member. Right. The only one that doesn't is the Met Council of Minnesota, the largest one, and the only one that can raise taxes independently. I'm working on a bill to return that power to Minnesota and make certain it's accountable. But I'm also working on making certain that if the state of Minnesota wants medicinal marijuana, which we have, if you if they want to determine those issues, the DEA shouldn't be intervening uh, using a, a false interpretation of the Commerce Clause. So it cuts both ways. But that's the sort of constitutionalism that I think is at stake in this election. Uh, if you think that you know they could force you to buy uh, health insurance under Obamacare, wait till they start rationing under Medicare for All at the federal level. Uh, those are sorts of the things that people are concerned about. And finally, if I talk to small businessmen and women throughout the district, they're very concerned about workforce development. We simply right now, and it's sort of a good problem, Walter, but we've got too many jobs and not enough employees mm. or people that are willing to do the work that's required. And to, to, to a man or a woman I talk to who's in a position to hire people, they're telling me, I don't need another four-year liberal arts humanities major. Right. I need someone that can operate a, a computerized lathe, right. a millwright, electrician, a plumber. Yeah. So I've been working hard on career and technical education to try to meet that you know, the, the, the higher ed lobby, quite frankly, doesn't like that. Um, sure. Um, but people ought to have choices. Young people ought to have choices so they're not so much in debt and waiting on tables at Starbucks to try to service their debt. 
Jason Lewis running for re-election in the second district here in Minnesota. Jason for MN.com is where you can find out more. Appreciate you joining us tonight. Walter, always a pleasure. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Cue him up. It's like putting a quarter in a jukebox. He plays all his greatest hits. You just have to sit back, relax, and enjoy him. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 651-989-5855 is the number to contribute. Brett Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. I got to tell you, I, I really admire Jason's capacity to thread that needle, to navigate the choppy waters of here are the things that I believe, here's what I can actually do in in an artful rhetorical way. I don't know if I'd be capable of threading the needle quite the way that he does. I think when you asked him about is there a market solution to immigration, it was kind of a non-answer. It was a very politician-like answer. I didn't expect anything else, but... It was a very politician-like answer. Well, and you wouldn't expect anything else, but it was well-delivered. Right? Sure, you got, yeah. you got to grant him that. It he was absolutely s- he well sounded delivered. good saying it. Yeah. Well, and the the answer is implicit in what he said, which is, is essentially what he said was, look, I can only do what I can do. Yeah. His answer was basically, it is what it is. And there's truth to that. It is, in fact, what it is. And, you know, the... As much as we've talked a lot about this Molly uh, Tibbetts situation over the past couple of days, and we'll get back into it later tonight, but as much as it flusters me, and it really does, it, it's annoying to me the the leveraging of this in order, in the particular fashion it's being leveraged to to push a political agenda, a political point. At the same time, I recognize the tremendous utility in it and the fact that from like for if you put yourself in the the shoes of a political consultant or somebody who does this for a living who just looks at how do we win elections you'd be dumb not to do it you know what i'm saying yeah but the media is doing the same thing too if this was just some murder in iowa it wouldn't have been a story i mean it was kind of a story because they at first i think they assumed that it was sex trafficking, like Highway Patrol was checking sure. truck stops and whatnot, but it turned out she just got murdered kind of in her backyard almost, in the same county. And uh, and now it's even more of a story, I would say, because it involves an illegal immigrant. Yeah, of course, and that has provided the pretext for the, the conversation about immigration, and we'll get back into that later on in the program. I want to touch back on the the Michael Cohen situation and the continuing fallout from uh, Tuesday's events, the uh, guilty plea, the plea deal that was cut by Michael Cohen and the implications. You know, the the term unindicted co-conspirator has been tossed around quite a bit in the media. And, you know, as, as has been pointed out by Ben Shapiro and others, 
that's a legal term, like a specific legal term that has a, a very clear definition that you are not in a position to use right now. Like the Cohen hasn't even officially gone to court to be sentenced to say any of this stuff under oath. It's just part of a deal that's been published that we know about. And so, you know, and not to mention the fact that Trump wasn't actually named. He was referenced, but he wasn't named. And he certainly hasn't been referred to by anybody in official court capacity as an unindicted co-conspirator. And it's been interesting over the past 24, 48 hours to read the legal analyses of a number of people, including some of you who have been sending me stuff on social media. There doesn't seem to be very clear agreement on what the legal implications of this is, whether or not, even if the things that Michael Cohen is saying is true, whether or not they constitute a clear violation of campaign finance law. There's this concept of, you know, if it, if it was Trump's money and not the campaign's money, and if it was used for the intent of simply keeping something secret that he didn't want people to know generally and not in an effort to influence the election, then does it really qualify as a campaign expenditure and what have you? And, you know, one of the, one of the cases that's being made is that, you know, Trump could say, look, this is just the cost of doing business when you're Donald Trump. This is just the cost of doing business when you're a high-profile guy who happens to have these types of liaisons on a fairly regular basis. You end up paying women off. It's not. It's not like it's the first time he has. It's not like the. It's the first time he's had a uh, affair with somebody who he wasn't married to and had to to deal with it uh, through these types of means. And so it becomes a question of you don't have to like the fact that he did it, but was it illegal? And he could make the case that this is something that I, the, the central question seems to be, would he have done this regardless of whether or not he was running for president of the United States? And if the, if he can plausibly argue, yes, he would have, then it's not a campaign finance violation. But the payoff didn't happen until he was running for president. Right. And so that's the counter argument. And so basically what it comes down to is what would a jury and or judge basically decide when when confronted or presented with those two counter arguments and until they make such a ruling none of us out here are going to know it's it's basically going to come down to the perception of the people who make the final decision as to what which speaks to the point that this campaign finance stuff in can be highly subjective which is problematic and and goes to the point that i was making yesterday that campaign finance laws overall are problematic because you're you're talking about people's use of their own resources in order to express speech and engage in relationship and at at what point where do you draw the line where do you set up clear objective borders as to when it's appropriate to do that and when it's not it's very difficult to do without violating somebody's rights and we ought to err on the the side of both clarity and freedom 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk.com. You know, Donald Trump, just by his very nature, the nature of who he is, his personality, his background, where he comes from, how he conducts himself, isn't always particularly articulate when he tries to make a point, but he does make some decent points from time to time. 
And uh, he tripped into one here in responding to the Michael Cohen situation. We're going to get into it here momentarily. Closing his argument. Tweet? Yeah, his, well, I don't know if it's his tweet. A tweet might have been involved. I think this comes out of the the interview he had with Fox uh, and Friends. Oh, okay. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're streaming at com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. You can catch up on past shows. If you missed our interview with Congressman Jason Lewis, you could catch that later tonight when it gets uploaded. Just search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up. 651-989-5855 is the number to contribute to the program. Always appreciate hearing from you. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. From the Chicago Tribune, President Donald Trump incensed over a deal his longtime personal attorney Michael Cohen cut with prosecutors, says it might be better if flipping were illegal because people just make up lies. Trump, in a television interview broadcast Thursday, tried to play down his relationship with his longtime fixer, who claims the president directed a hush money scheme to buy the silence of two women who say they had affairs with Trump. The president contends Cohen only worked for him part-time and is accusing the lawyer of making up stories to reduce his legal exposure. I know all about flipping, Trump told Fox and Friends, which taped the interview at the White House on Wednesday. For 30, 40 years, I've been watching flippers. Everything's wonderful, and then they get 10 years in jail, and they, they flip on whoever the next highest one is, or as high as you can go. Now, by flip, of course, you know, maybe it's discernible once you get into it a little bit, but by flip, he means testifying against somebody else. Oh, I thought he meant real estate. I thought it was some reference to like dolphins or something, yeah. or like seal tricks or something along those lines. No, it, he's talking about what we've been talking about since this news broke on Tuesday, which is this concept of accomplice testimony or incentivized testimony. And his point here is actually valid. We've been talking about it all week that you have to you have to take into consideration the motives of the witness who is providing the testimony. If a prosecutor, if you knew that a prosecutor was paying somebody to say something, then you would take that testimony with a huge chunk of salt. And effectively, that's what incentivized testimony is when a prosecutor is saying, look, you know, we've got all this evidence stacked up against you and, you know, we could potentially we could go to court and we could get convictions and you could end up spending 45 years in jail. But we're willing to accept these lesser charges and go for a significantly reduced sentence if you give us a little something, something that is a thing of value. You know, the, the, the phrase thing of value is something that we're all familiar with at this point because it's been central to the whole investigation Mueller's investigation into Russian collusion and then the notion of you know if the Russians did bought Facebook ads or whatever for eleven thousand dollars and that were read by a couple of thousand people that's a thing of value and therefore a campaign contribution and therefore a prima facie violation of the supposed separation that's supposed to take place between foreign powers and our electoral process. Well, you want to talk about a thing of value, getting, you know, 10, 20, 30 years off of your proposed prison sentence is certainly a thing of value, right? And so why wouldn't we consider that when we're looking at the credibility of a witness? And so Trump's point in in this case, uh, (laughs) poorly articulated though it might be, 
does have some merit to it. I mean, I agree with you that it is incentivized testimony, and we should take it with a grain of salt, But and it has been misapplied in the past. But again, that doesn't mean what Cohen is saying isn't true. No, it doesn't. But in the, in the court of law, the court of public opinion is one thing. In a court of law, you need more than just the possibility that something might be true. You need evidence. And I, I'm totally open to the very real possibility, in fact, I'd call it a likelihood, that there is evidence to back up what Michael Cohen is saying. I don't think the prosecutors would be moving forward or that they would even have bothered to cut a plea deal if they didn't have something more substantial than just Michael Cohen saying, yeah, this happened. Um, but nevertheless, the the notion that, because all we know at this point, based upon the, the reports that we've seen, is that Michael Cohen says things happened. If That's you were, what we know. If you were Michael Clo- Cohen, would you flip on Trump? <laughs> well, I'm very glad that I'm not in a position to have to answer that question, because I'll never be Michael Cohen. But yes, I take your point. If you were in his position, would you flip? Yes. Most people would, right? I mean, and when you think about the type of people who Trump surrounds himself with you know he's a self-interested person he runs in self-interested circles i don't think it's any surprise that he's he's finding people who are deciding that their self-interest is a superior consideration to his you reap what you sell let's talk to nathan in minneapolis welcome to the program hey thanks for my call good taking my call and uh i just want to start by saying thank you for actually talking about this i've been listening to uh fox news throughout the week and there's been very little talk of this, um, mm-hmm. and so I appreciate you taking it on. Um, I would like to ask uh, the question. Um, I think the line of int- the line of question you were taking earlier about the question about whether or not um, politicians and people in leadership should be paying for silence is um, the more important question than legitimizing or delegitimizing Michael Cohen's uh, thing. He did produce a tape where Trump admitted to paying off in the silence. So it's not just flipping. Um, But I do think that I think that it tends to be corroding away. And it's like a red herring sort of it feels like to me. Which part? Uh, Talking about whether Cohen is if delegitimizes Cohen because he is getting a plea deal. Um, I think that's a red herring. So what's so what should, the point? What is the point then? Let's, let's talk I think about what you're talking point. about earlier, which is um, that someone is paying for the silencing of important information that would have influenced an election. Well, you could also make the argument, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I'm not, as you well know, Nathan, I'm no huge Trump defender. No, no, but, 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 but just that, for the, I think it's a dangerous uh, line of thinking to put out there. I don't think so. I totally look the. You, you know where we the line of thinking associated with the devil. No, you know, understand what the term <laughs> "devil's advocate" stands for, as, as your laughter indicates. No, but listen, the the notion of incentivized testimony and accomplice testimony that we, we first cited that from an article written in 538 back in April. I mean, this is something that transcends this particular circumstance to this particular case. It's yeah, long been a concern. Moment, it feels like a red herring. Okay. Well, I mean, it's if, if it had value before this moment, it still has whatever value it had. And so I, I don't know. I don't quite follow just, your point. Just because something is a fallacy doesn't mean that the argument is wrong. 
Well, that's right. That's but when I, and I've been listening to conservative media throughout the week, and it seems like something that's much easier to talk about than the fact that uh, our president paid off a news media source to silence a story. Well, then the let's, let's talk about news, that. Then. The king of fake news create like silenced news. Let's talk about that. Then let's assume that all of the allegations are correct. What is the full gravity of that in your mind? I think the full gravity of it is the fact that we have to sit with the fact that our the person that we elected was comfortable silencing news stories and pay, using his money to control media. Do, do you get the sense that... Because here's the thing. I'm not at all surprised by that potentiality. And I'm not sure that anybody else is either. Like, do you sense that this is actually going to move the dial politically with people who are either hardcore with Trump or hardcore against him? No, no, but I think that those people aren't in play anymore. The people that are in play are moderates and independents. And you don't think they knew that this is what they were getting when we elected the guy two, a couple of years ago? Uh, I mean, well, they the, could have it, if they, the story would have been able to be released. After the Access Hollywood thing, and just knowing Donald Trump and his public persona for as long as he's been a thing, I, I don't know how this changes the calculus of who Donald Trump is and what type of values he has as a, as a person and the morality of his personal decisions and what have you. Like, I, I don't see how this is a big game changer in terms of my analysis of who Donald Trump is. It, it is a game changer in terms of the legal drama that he finds himself under. And th- this does, this story is significant in presenting a, a, a legal substance that can be built upon in these various channels of investigation that are moving forward. That's why it's noteworthy, and that's why we're talking about it. I know I completely agree, and I appreciate you talking about it. I, I think that the, the more important thing is how I, I would like to talk about this would be an excellent opportunity to make an example of people who try to buy media and silence the speech of people who have been wronged or who want to so, tell their but, story. Okay, so do the, let me ask you this. People. Let me ask you this, and we're running late for a break, unfortunately, but as quickly as you can. Do the women, does Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, do they have agency? Do they have to take the money? I mean, they could tell their story whether they take the money or not. Or, you know, obviously they have. And they weren't wronged either. They will. They were willingly, willing participants. Right. No, I'm saying the, the people who have decided then to tell their story. Uh-huh. I think they're, if, you, if someone presents you with a substantive amount of money, it becomes difficult to make a free choice because so much money is in play. Well, that's just the interaction of values. That happens in any transaction. I appreciate your call, Nathan. As always, you present some some great uh, counterpoints, great yep, contribution to the show. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM Twin Cities News Talk dot com. It's interesting. I tripped upon this Politico story during the break. They're reporting on a controversy within the Democratic Party. Apparently, the DNC is holding one of their annual meetings in Chicago right now. And you you guys recall, you may recall, the 
super delegates that played a role in the primary contest between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And if you don't know, and I, I don't claim to be any sort of expert as to how the intra-party politics works within the Democratic Party. I know it's vastly different than uh, in the Republican Party, which is much more, ironically, much more Democratic than the Democratic Party. But they have these superdelegates. And I don't understand, like, the, the science of how they work, like the whiteboard, you know, mathematics of how they work. But the bottom line is a superdelegate, as you might imagine, has a more impactful vote and a more impactful influence than a normal delegate. Understanding super delegates is like trying to understand what a tackle is in the NFL or what a catch is in the NFL or what NASCAR rules are from season to season. It just doesn't make any sense because they can change them every election. Well, the all you need to know in order to kind of understand what a super delegate is is who they are, who they tend to be. You know, the description here at Politico uh, are those who are governors, Congress people, uh, party leaders, officials. So in other words, muckety mucks, the, the higher ups, you might refer to them as the establishment. They make up the superdelegates. And so there's this effort going on right now within the Democratic Party to undo the way things are currently done. The current proposal, this is from Politico, a priority of Sanders and his supporters since the Vermont senator's defeat two years ago, a result of the Unity Reform Commission established at the 2016 National Convention, would prohibit superdelegates from voting on the first presidential nominating ballot at a contested national convention, reducing their influence in a nominating process. Its approval would allow Democrats to finally put one of the bitterest feuds in the last presidential primary behind them. If the DNC rejects this, it basically rejects the will of the convention, said Mark Longabaugh, a senior advisor to Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. The left wing of the party would be outraged. The July or By July, the measure had drawn the support of not only the party's left flank, but many Clinton supporters as well. Championed by Tom Perez, the party chairman, the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee overwhelmingly approved the measure, which was endorsed not only by Sanders, but also two former DNC chairs, former Vermont Governor Howard Dean and Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, Hillary Clinton's 2016 running mate. Now, the point I want to make about this is as follows. As Republicans, as conservatives, we should be thrilled by this potential change because what this means is that the the populist masses, the, the grassroots muckety-mucks within the Democratic Party, are, if this goes through, you're going to see a lot more Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's. You're going to see a lot more candidates who can't win. I mean, that's the bottom line. You're going to see candidates who can't win because they're out of sync, out of line with where the mainstream of the electorate is, which, you know, I might point out has been a problem in the Republican Party as well, you know, perhaps for this reason. It's interesting because you have the whole Tim Pawlenty thing, which was an effort to go in the other direction, which, which was an effort to undermine the effect that the grassroots have within the Republican Party. And then over on the Democratic side, you have them moving in the other direction. And, you know, it it may end up being that Republicans end up over time electing or selecting more electable people. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Emerging.
engaging in the terrible story of the heinous murder of Molly Tibbetts. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Streaming at com and on your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you being with us. Join us at 651-989-5855. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. From the Star Tribune, the Iowa college student who was allegedly abducted by a stranger while running last month in a small town was stabbed to death, investigators announced Thursday. Preliminary autopsy results from the state medical examiner's office determined that 20-year-old Molly Tibbetts was the victim of a homicide who died from multiple sharp force injuries, the Division of Criminal Investigation announced in a news release. State medical examiner Dennis Klein said in an interview that the finding means a sharp-edged or pointed object, such as a knife, was used to attack Tibbetts. He declined comment on the details of her injuries and said that his office would hire consultants, including forensic anthropologists, to analyze her remains further and make additional findings. The man charged with first-degree murder in Tibbetts' death, Christian Bahana Riviera, allegedly led investigators to her body early Tuesday in a cornfield outside of Brooklyn, Iowa, the town where the University of Iowa psychology major was last seen one month prior. While investigators were confident then that the body was take, was that of Tibbetts, the autopsy definitively confirmed her identity. Prosecutors allege that Riviera abducted Tibbetts while she was out for an evening run in Brooklyn on July 18th, killed her, and disposed of her body in the secluded location. A criminal complaint alleges that Riviera confessed during a lengthy interrogation that began Monday to following Tibbetts in his car, getting out on foot, and chasing after her. Riviera told investigators that he panicked after Tibbetts threatened to call police on her cell phone. He blacked out and later came to when he was unloading her bloody body from the trunk of a car, it says. Riviera worked for the last four years at a dairy farm a few miles from where Tibbetts was last seen. He and Tibbetts have no known connections other than that Riviera allegedly told investigators that he saw her running previously. Investigators zeroed in on him as the suspect after obtaining footage from surveillance cameras showing a vehicle connected to him circling the area of Tibbetts' running route. So, this is one of those stories where each new trickle just adds to the horror of what happened and what we know. And it's, it's getting to the point where I don't know how much more I want to know about what this guy did and, and how he did it. It's just, it's a, it's a terrible God awful story that naturally and properly evokes a high degree of righteous indignation and emotion and anger. You know, you should be angry in response to something like this. And that anger can be leveraged for different purposes. It can be leveraged for politics. And so has been the case here in the good old state of Minnesota. Also from the Star Tribune, Minnesota State Senator Karen Housley on Wednesday seized on the killing of a young Iowa college student and the reported confession of an immigrant with disputed legal status to take the fight on the immigration issue to her Democratic opponent, U.S. Senator Tina Smith. Housley, a Republican from the Stillwater area, released a statement calling the murder a preventable tragedy. She charged that Smith and liberal Democrats are more concerned about protecting criminal aliens than protecting innocent lives like Molly Tibbetts. Smith did not directly address Housley's attack. 
She said, this is an awful tragedy, and my heart breaks for Molly's family. I could imagine nothing worse than losing a child. The individual responsible for this heinous crime must be brought to justice and punished, Smith said in a statement to the Star Tribune. It's astounding to me how, if you shift the circumstances, the style of argument from the different partisan perspectives completely flips. If you, if this was a school shooting, the you could take the exact same rhetoric, flip the partisan identities, and you have, would have the exact same statements. You would have the Democrat who would be coming out saying, this is a preventable tragedy, and conservative Republicans are more concerned about being beholden to the NRA. We're just playing Mad Libs at this point. Yeah, that's all it is. It's plug and play, right? It's like plug and play. You just change, flip around the details, flip the script of who is talking and what the situation is, and the rhetoric would be exactly the same. And then you would have the Republican coming back talking about how it's an awful tragedy. We, you know, our thoughts and prayers go out to the family. So the families and, and the individual responsible for the heinous crime must be brought to justice. Literally the same thing would be said by the opposite people in a different circumstance because of one thing, the politics, the politics, who benefits from it? You know, what, what script are you supposed to read from under these circumstances? Now, listen, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that Karen Housley doesn't sincerely believe that if we enforce our immigration laws, that this tragedy could have been prevented. I'm sure she does. I'm sure Jason Lewis believes that. You know, he took the same tack, is, is taking the same tact uh, against his opponent, Angie Craig, in the 2nd Congressional District. I'm sure it's a sincere belief and a sincere narrative. Nonetheless, I, I find myself interested, I'll use that word, interested in this this similarity in rhetoric or the 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 juxtaposition juxtaposition of rhetoric were this a different situation politically if it was a gun crime rather than the the murder of a girl by an illegal immigrant the rhetoric on both sides would be completely flipped uh, i think that's something that needs to be acknowledged and dealt with to some degree Minneapolis has an interesting situation developed. We had a story about this earlier in the stuff, the stack that we have that we never got to last week, and there's new news developing on it. Apparently, there's a homeless camp in Minneapolis, like just a place where a bunch of homeless people have set up a bunch of tents, and they just live there. Like, that's a thing, apparently. This is the type of story that... You know, I've come across these types of stories before, but they were always from cities like Seattle or, you know, L.A. or Chicago or somewhere. This is the type of thing that I never thought I would see here in the Twin Cities. But apparently we just have big homeless camps now. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry and American Indian leaders Thursday pledged to find stable housing for approximately 120 people living in a large and growing homeless encampment in South Minneapolis. At a crowded news conference... Fry promised a full-throated effort by city and county social service agencies to provide housing and other services to the tent city at Hiawatha and Cedar Avenues near the Little Earth Housing Complex. Fry said he aims to eliminate the encampment by the end of September 
as the city works on longer-term solutions for expanding the city's supply of affordable housing and reducing its growing homeless population. Housing is a right, Fry said, and the city has an obligation to step up, and we are stepping up. Now, so I I have questions about this. He just took, like, every wrong approach to this issue i have i have a few uh questions about the implications of this so it's already been established that this homeless camp is large and growing so the trajectory is headed in the wrong direction you have just announced as the mayor of minneapolis that your solution to this problem is to provide people with housing now if i'm a homeless person and I somehow, you know, because I'm assuming word gets around. I don't know. You know, I'm, they got radios. They pick up used newspapers, whatever the case may be. And I read this. I find out about this. I hear tell that they're going to be shutting down that uh, that homeless camp and shipping everybody off to affordable housing. The mayor of Minneapolis just said housing is a right. Turns out I don't got any. So I suppose I had to go to Minneapolis. Like, the, this is not going to make the problem better. This is going to make the problem significantly worse. I have a solution for the homeless camp. Winter. <laughs> uh, let's talk to Eric and say, Paul, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing, man? Good. Um, yeah, that um, homeless camp over there, I pass that place every day. Now, um, a few weeks ago, um, I don't know, I was just leaving out for work. A uh, cop got on the news and was talking about that little spot over there. Mm-hmm. It was only it was only like ten tents out there. After he got on the news and brought that porta potty out there, right? It exploded. Right, of I course. Mean, it, 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 it was crazy, man. It's like man, it's like forty tents out there now, man. Yeah. You know who's got to be mad? You know who has to be more mad about this than anybody else? The who first that, people to get there, the first people who ever got there and set up their tent. And we're like, yeah. this place is nice. There's nobody around. It's a nice big open yeah. green space. I'm going to put my tent here. And then all of a yeah. sudden, here comes the mayor and the news crew, and yeah. it becomes a, a homeless convention. I mean, forget about super <laughs> in. This is, this is taking it to the next level. All yeah. right. I, I, and, and, you know, it's not going to end. Now, wintertime is coming real soon. They're talking about, you said, September. Yeah. It's not. It's not going to be that easy to move them folks in September, unless they do like they do in California. They just come and just take all their stuff and throw all their stuff away. Yeah, I don't see them moving by September. Yeah, uh, well, it's pretty hard to do that when the moral premise that's been put forward by the mayor is housing is a right. If housing is a oh, right, yeah. I, I don't know how you're going to deal. I don't know how you're going to deal with a, a homeless situation by taking their stuff right. away and forcing them to leave. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, just get a job, I guess. Um, uh, just one more thing, yeah, yeah. Uh, WH. Um, that um, that gentleman you had on earlier, what's his name and what office is he running from? Jason Lewis. He's a congressman seeking re-election in the second congressional district, which is the Southern Metro. Yeah, hey man, that guy is on point, man. I like how he talks. I, I so do I. Appreciate All it. Right. Thanks for the All call. Right. Yeah, Jason Lewis. I I say without irony that Jason Lewis is like one of the top three influences in my life in terms of my philosophical and political development. So it was quite an honor to have him on the program. Yeah. But this, you know, this concept of housing is a right. Here's a good litmus test for you. 
to determine whether or not something is a right. And, you know, just consider it a rule of thumb. I don't know if this plays out in every example, but it strikes me as a pretty good rule of thumb. If you would have the alleged right, if you found yourself on a desert island by yourself, if you would still have whatever the alleged right is, then it probably is actually a right. If you wouldn't have it, then it's not a right. And so housing, you know, the idea that if I found myself tomorrow, you know, somebody clubbed me over the head in the parking lot and I woke up on a desert island in the middle of the ocean tomorrow, I would not have just inherently have housing. I wouldn't just inherently have health care. I wouldn't inherently have food. None of those things are rights because they don't come as a natural product of my being. They require something more than my mere existence. I have to engage in effort and productivity in the seeking of value in order to make those things come about. Well, even if you did drop on a desert island, like you would still have to put in some sort of labor to improve your quality of life. Right, which is the whole point. The, the, the notion that you have a right to something like housing, it is an endorsement of slavery. And that's not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. That's not me trying to be provocative. It literally is an advocacy for slavery. Because if you're going to say that somebody has a right to something that requires productive action, but they don't have to be the ones who take that action, somebody else has to. You're saying, when you say people have a right to housing, you're saying they have the right to the fruit of somebody else's labor. And that is, by definition, slavery. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. One of my original standing rules for the program was that the left doesn't get to claim the scientific high ground because their entire platform is a declaration of war against reality. And, you know, this is in direct response to the claim that is very frequently made by the left, by Democrats, that they're the party of science. They're the ones who believe science, which, you know, I <laughs> we, we could spend some time just reflecting upon the inappropriateness of putting those two words together. They're the ones who believe science. They're the scientific champions. They're the ones who are acknowledging the reality of our existence in the modern age and that Republicans and conservatives and those who are quote climate change deniers unquote are like flat earthers or, you know, those who put Galileo on trial or something along those lines. The truth is exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. And we're going to get into it here. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. So let's start at the Wall Street Journal. James E. Hansen wiped sweat from his brow. Outside, it was a record high of 98 degrees on June 23rd of 1988. As the NASA scientists testified before the Senate Committee on Energy and National Resources during a prolonged heat wave, which he decided to cast as a climate event of cosmic significance. He expressed to the senators his high degree of confidence in a cause and effect relationship between the greenhouse effect and observed warming. With that testimony and an accompanying paper in the Journal of Geophysical Research, 
Mr. Hansen lit the bonfire of the greenhouse vanities, igniting a worldwide debate that continues today about the energy structure of the entire planet. President Obama's environmental policies were predicated on similar models of rapid, high-cost warming. But the 30th anniversary of Mr. Hansen's predictions affords an opportunity to see how well his forecasts have done and to reconsider environmental policy accordingly. Mr. Hansen's testimony described three possible scenarios for the future of carbon dioxide emissions. He called scenario A business as usual, as it maintained the accelerating emissions growth typical of the 1970s and 80s. This scenario predicted the Earth would warm one degree Celsius by 2018. Scenario B set emissions lower, rising at the same rate today as in 1988. Mr. Hansen called this outcome the most plausible and predicted it would lead to about 0.7 degree of warming by this year. He added a final projection, scenario C, which he deemed highly unlikely, constant emissions beginning in 2000. In that forecast, temperatures would rise a few tenths of a degree before flatlining after 2000. 30 years of data have been collected since Mr. Hansen outlined his scenarios, enough to determine which was closest to reality. And the winner is scenario C. Global surface temperature has not increased significantly since the year 2000, discounting the larger-than-usual El Nino of 2015 and 2016. Assessed by Mr. Hansen's model, surface temperatures are behaving as if we had capped 18 years ago the carbon dioxide emissions responsible for the enhanced greenhouse effect. But we didn't. And it isn't just Mr. Hansen who got it wrong. Models devised by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have, on average, predicted about twice as much warming as has been observed since global satellite temperature monitoring began 40 years ago. And so the point here is that increasingly climate change deniers, you know, people, people who are skeptical about the claims of people like this Hansen character and the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we skeptics increasingly can be described as plain readers of data. That's who we are. We read the data. We take your claim. You know, th this is how arguments work, right? You have a premise or how the scientific process works. You have a hypothesis and then you collect your evidence, your data, and then you reconsider your hypothesis. Does this actually match up with what I thought I was going to find? And if it doesn't, then you have to change your perception to fit the evidence. That's how this whole logic thing works, how the argument works, how science works, right? And so, you know, th that's why the whole notion of people who believe in science versus people who don't, it's not, a, it's not a faith. It's not a religion. It's not something that you believe in. It's something that you do. Science is something that you do. It's a rational process. And so for those of us who actually do it, for those of us who actually engage in the consideration of a hypothesis or a premise that's presented to us and then look at the data the evidence and then draw our conclusions based upon where the data takes us it's taking us in a direction that indicates very strongly that the hyperbolic warnings about anthropogenic climate change and global warming are nonsense and certainly not something that that is warranting us taking drastic public policy measures to to encroach upon the individual rights of human beings who are seeking after the values they need in order to survive and thrive. And, you know, this is something that when, when this doesn't surprise me reading this at the wall street journal, it doesn't surprise me at all.
a few years back, about the time I started getting involved with the Tea Party, this would have been somewhere around 2009, 2010. Lord Christopher Monkton, I think is the name of the guy, came to town and he gave a presentation at Bethel University that I attended. And he talked about the work that was being done by a then MIT professor. I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. But, uh, but he's, he's, he's an outcast, right? Like he's, he's a guy who you bring up his name uh, in climate circles, environmental science circles, and the, there immediately it becomes an ad hominem effort to discredit him because he actually had the audacity to engage in the actual scientific process to put these ideas to the test. And what he found was that, the, first of all, acknowledging that the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that their models, models, what's a model? A model, a model is basically a drawing on a whiteboard. That's what a model is. It's, this is what we think is going to happen. That's what a model is. And the models that were put forward by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had assumptions built into them. And one of the assumptions was that as you increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you will also see a proportional increase in the temperature of the planet. And what this MIT professor, whose name I'll Google during the break, what he discovered through this novel process known as measuring actual data, going out there and looking at what the temperature really is and has been over a period of time, what he discovered is that in point of fact, the amount of radiation that escapes the Earth increases as greenhouse gases increase. That the, the Earth has a process that you might compare to or use the analogy of like a, the, the way in which your own body regulates its temperature. You get hotter, what happens? You start to sweat. Like processes kick in in order to adjust and adapt and compensate for the fact that your body temperature is rising. The Earth may, in fact, have a similar process. That's what was discovered. And so it doesn't surprise me at all to find out that the prognostications of climate alarmists, like this Hansen character, have not panned out. Because his ideas, his warnings, his concerns never matched actual data. They only matched a drawing that somebody threw up on a whiteboard and called science. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Twin Cities News Talk.com. Richard Lindzen is the name of the guy. MIT professor with all sorts of credentials to his name. And if you Google him, you're going to find you know page after page of attempts to discredit him because that's how the environmental left operates. It's ad hominem, and it's, oh, this guy, you can't believe him. You know, the, the arguments basically fall into one of two categories. He's wrong because of all of the things that say the opposite of what he says. So they'll point to the, basically, arguments from authority. They'll point to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and say, aha, the United Nations says, therefore, which is not an argument. And the other avenue of attack they'll say is, well, you can't believe him because he's been funded by the energy companies. He's been funded by big oil and what have you, which might be a compelling argument if it weren't for the fact that literally every environmental scientist is funded by the government to some degree or another. 
and therefore also has an economic incentive in pushing their narrative. Nobody's, nobody's hands are clean in terms of financial incentives in this debate. And all of that is beside the point that it doesn't actually matter, right? Like the, the particulars of the person and what motives and influences they may have do not determine whether or not their claims are true or false. An actual analysis of the facts does that. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855. The number to join us. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. Let's talk to Bill in Stillwater. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. I, you know, I wanted to draw a parallel to... Uh, another political data problem in the last 15 years if you follow political polling there's a couple of polls that get it right but the vast vast majority of them tend to overstate uh, democratic leads or uh, or uh, values in their polls you know generally most polls will give a democrat about five percent and and this can have a huge impact if it's uh, before the election day if a republican is actually five points behind well that's a that's a sign to get behind them, get enthusiastic, get some money behind them. But if he's 10 points behind, as the polls show, it can, it can cause problems for fundraising, for enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And I think polling's getting better, but I don't think the global warming models are. Uh, a few years ago, they surveyed 104 different global warming models. About two of them had gotten it right, but the other 102 were all skewed in the same direction towards more warming. Right. They were all wrong in the same direction. Right. And the problem is, is that that impacts real policy. That yeah. impacts whether we're going to have carbon taxes or cap and trade or what kind of mitigation. And it really inspires people to vote um, in ways that impact public policy. Yeah, that's a solid point, Bill. I appreciate you calling in to make it. And it, it's interesting that so many of them could be an error and that they all happen to be an error in the same direction. And that happens to be the direction that supports the continued funding of the exact research that those scientists in question are doing. Weird that it's, it's almost as if there's a financial incentive to come to certain conclusions, whether it actually comports with reality or not. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the show. Isn't the road of this whole problem, like most of the stuff we're talking like the lack of fundamental education, like the difference between causation and correlation is is what the whole reason why the left thinks that climate change is affected by CO2. Because there are points in time when there was higher CO2 and there was higher temperatures. That's mm. true. But that doesn't mean it caused it. Right. Yeah, no, I, I that that's absolutely right. I appreciate the call, Barry. It's it's true. There, it's definitely an issue of conflating correlation with causation. But I think the the real truth behind this is more insidious, and it's the same thing we see manifest in the uh, very apparent hypocrisy on race issues and the very apparent hypocrisy on on things such as the Me Too movement and what have you, where the utility of the narrative is really what matters above all else. So, you know, when they claim, when the left claims to care about minorities and the plight of the poor and the plight of the woman and the plight of whoever is, is they cast as being disadvantaged or oppressed, 
they don't actually care about any of those people at all. They only care about the utility of the narrative to advance their political agenda. So it is with science. So it is with scientific claims. The Daily Wire has a piece here. Socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez claimed on Wednesday that the United States government is allowing global warming to kill Americans and provided absolutely no evidence whatsoever to validate her claims. In her political career, only weeks old, Ocasio-Cortez has become known for making completely false statements, lying, and having a hard time understanding basic concepts and principles. And she doesn't need to, because it's not about, for her and for those who follow her and see a value in her, it's not about the basic concepts and principles. The basic concepts and principles don't matter. They are beside the point. The point is not what's true. The point is what is useful, what serves the utility, what serves the mission, what gets the job done, what they can use to advance their effort to secure political power in order to lord over the rest of us. It sounds like the Alex Jones approach to rhetoric. Uh, absolutely. Just be as ridiculous as possible. You know, another way, also from the Daily Wire, that the the left very clearly and obviously and right in front of our faces ignores objective scientific biological reality is the whole transgender issue. A health information site titled Healthline, which serves a reputed 85 million people a month, is offering an LGBTQIA, I don't even know what those last three letters are, safe sex guide that stipulates the word vagina is no longer appropriate for that part of the female genitalia. Instead, the proper term for that orifice is now, and this is not a joke, this is not the onion. The new proper accepted term for the female genitalia is front hole. I heard J- Justice say this on the morning show, I think yesterday, and I laughed because I thought he was just making it up. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I when, when I first read this story, like I clicked on it, I saw the URL, I knew it was the Daily Wire. Nonetheless, when I got to that point in the story... I started looking for like Photoshop artifacts to make sure I was actually on a real website because I I could not believe at first glance that this is true. But this is the level of absurdity that we've gotten to. We've gotten to the point where you can't even use scientific biological terms because it doesn't comport with the agenda. It, it doesn't have the utility to move forward the agenda of the left. And the agenda is what is of foremost importance. Not the truth, not facts, not reality, not what works, not what's practical, and certainly not your rights as an individual. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. If you want to squeeze in a comment before the end of the program. There's a piece I've been kicking around. I've, I've had it included in my show plan for quite some time, and we haven't gotten to it. 
But I want to I want to hit it in this last segment of the evening because and it goes back to a story that is you know totally old and dead now. You know our news cycle is so short <laughs> that we we very quickly forget things that pop up in the news. But you may recall there was this Republican representative out of New York by the name of Chris Collins who got caught up in an insider trading scandal and by all accounts from from all the evidence that's been presented he's guilty like he did it and but you know it, what what happened in short was in his position in congress he became aware of information regarding a company that he and many of his family members had stock in he he came became privy to information that other people didn't have outside of the committee whatever committee he found himself in that indicated that he that company was about to take a hit and so he told his son about it and his son went ahead and told some other people about it and they sold their shares in order to avoid taking what would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of losses and that's what insider trading is and so he's guilty of a crime i hear richard painter might be looking for a job yeah there you go in terms of ethics now the interesting thing here is is that I don't believe, and neither does this author who we're about to consider here at the Washington Post, I don't believe this ought to be a crime. I don't think there's anything about what we call insider trading that violates anybody's rights whatsoever. And the headline here at the Washington Post says it all. Show me the victims of insider trading. I'll wait. Megan McArdle writes, galaxy-level stupidity. That's how a securities lawyer of my acquaintance characterized the alleged insider trading operation of Representative Chris Collins, a Republican from New York's 27th district. If the indictment is accurate, the fact that Collins allegedly phoned illegal tips from the White House lawn is not even the most surprising or interesting thing about this case. What would be truly wondrous is his thinking he could get away with it. If you are on a pharmaceutical company board and you tell your son to sell the firm stock because its new drug just failed in trials, there is basically a 100% chance that regulators are going to connect the dots. And if your son tells his fiance and his future father-in-law and said father-in-law then tells his brother and sister, well, the chances that someone close to you will be indicted are also good. In this case, it was Collins, his son, and the father of his son's fiance who were charged with wire fraud, securities fraud, and conspiracy to commit securities fraud. All three pleaded not guilty, and Collins vowed to, not only to keep his seat, but also to continue campaigning for re-election in November. Okay, what Collins is alleged to have done wasn't too bright, but was it wrong? At some level, yes, it's wrong because it's illegal and you shouldn't break the law. Except people break the law all the time when they think no one is being harmed. As when they speed on a deserted stretch of road or put money into the office pool during March Madness. But who was hurt by what Collins allegedly did? The answer might seem obvious. Anyone who bought the stock that Collins' son, Cameron, and others sold... But it's not as if Cameron Collins went door-to-door persuading pensioners to buy his ticking bomb shares. According to the indictment, he used a broker to sell the stock. The broker presumably sold that stock to people who already had an interest in buying it. Yes, Cameron Collins allegedly knew that the interest was misguided. It would have been selfless of him to hang on to the stock and bear the losses himself. But if he hadn't sold, those interested buyers would have bought shares from someone else. 
And here's the kicker. Since share prices tend to decrease as the supply of shares increases, the buyers might have actually paid a higher price if Cameron Collins weren't on the market and thereby would have lost more money. Now, I want to pause there for a moment to, to really highlight that because that, to me, is the clincher. That's the, the money shot right there in terms of this argument. We've talked before about what price is and how price works and why price is so important, why economic value is human value. A, a price is a signal to both producers and consumers, to both buyers and sellers, of what the ec economic value of a particular product or service or item or share or stock or whatever it is, what the particular economic value is. And when you keep somebody from selling something that they want to sell because they have insider information and it would be unfair for them to profit or to avoid loss from information that other people don't have, what you're actually preventing them from doing is communicating that information to the broader market because that's what selling is. Like anybody who sells a stock ever, right? Like anytime you, you hold a stock and you decide to sell it, you are saying, I think the price is going to go down. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I think now is the time to sell this because it's going to go down. Now, you have your reasons for believing that, and your reasons may be different from somebody else's reasons for selling, and certainly your reasons for selling are different than whoever's deciding to buy it, but that's the whole point. This interaction between buyer and seller is how we arrive at the signal of price, which communicates and conveys in real time what the economic value of a product is. And so by keeping Cameron Collins and keeping this congressman and their family from acting on the information they had, it actually in, decreased the amount of time. It compressed the reaction. So the reaction to the news ends up coming all at once in, in, in something that looks much more like a crash in the price than if people who had this information and were privy to it could actually act on it immediately. And, you know, particularly because you might think, well, how, how unfair is it? And they talk about this further in the article, you know, the notion of how you would undermine public confidence in the stock market and in particular stocks if you allowed insiders to trade based upon information that they're privy to. But that, that too should be factored into price. Caveat impor, buyer beware. You should know what it is that you're buying. And you should be aware of, if, if you're buying a stock and you know that a certain percentage of that stock is owned by people who have inside information regarding what's happening with the company, then you better be watching what those people are doing like a hawk, right? You better be taking into consideration, and it, it would be something that you would factor in. If you knew that was a possibility, you would factor it into your decision to buy the stock in the first place, and that, too, would have an effect upon price. So once again, just like any intervention in the, arc, in the market, anytime you try to set prices or interfere in the mechanisms by which price is set, all you're accomplishing is a destructive end. All you're doing is interrupting, throwing throwing white noise into the signal that is price and making it more difficult for people to make informed decisions. And that's not just impractical, it's also immoral. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, 9 to 11 weeknights. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.